CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coin World Podcast as we're rocketing now into the month of October. And we want to welcome you in. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. We thank you for being here today. As every day, every week, you uh, allow us to sit here and um, share our love for this great hobby. We've got a lot of great things to talk about in the episode ahead and also in our future episodes here. But brand new month, and that means we have a brand new sponsor. As a matter of fact, we want to welcome on board our sponsor of the podcast here and that is CoinWorld Plus. And CoinWorld Plus is, of course, uh, a great way to manage your collection like you never have before. It's uh, never been easy to find your coin and also basically giving your coin a voice. Now, we had uh, some of the information available about CoinWorld Plus in our uh, recent most influential people in numismatics. So you may have caught up about that on now, but uh, you're also seeing CoinWorld Plus showing up at the shows. It was at the ANA World's Fair of Money. It uh, recently made an appearance at the Long Beach Expo. And so we're going to be seeing it out there. And uh, a good friend, David Hall, talked about that a little bit in one of our most recent videos that was seen on CoinWorld.com. So we're excited to have CoinWorld Plus on the roster here right now to help us out for our uh, podcast moving forward here today. Absolutely. So, you know what's a, a big plus, though? The flag oh. of Switzerland. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, I guess that would be, you know, the, that's the, the plus sign type thing. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into the bingo thing later, but, you know, All that's right. just the idea there that it's great to have them on board here, and certainly it's something you may want to check out, too, with your graded coins to make sure that you can... Uh, enhance the security, authenticity, and the elements that are made available for it. Now, we're in the process of building up a community, too, because so much of what it's all about in this hobby is uh, being connected with others who have similar interests. And that's what we do here with the podcast. And We've been very fortunate to have a lot of uh, great feedback uh, on the show here, and we encourage that as well. Uh, I did finally get the chance to see the email that Michael Cathro sent. You mentioned it in the last podcast concerning that and his uh, reference to the Tinkerbells. And, of course, that got me scurrying to look at my Disney dollars, and sure enough. And, you know, we've had recently we had in a uh, trivia game on the uh, coin collecting for the new guy, we had a question that kind of stumped me related to bills, and that was asking about where the scales and uh, the justice scales could be found on bills. And I'm looking all over the place, and I can't see it, but it's all right there in the seal. And uh, so uh, that that question went unanswered. And so that's what we try to do. Little nuances that uh, sometimes can go overlooked because they're not the serial number, they're not the portraiture on a bill. But there are little things that help make this uh, differentiation. You know, you had a question a few episodes back regarding the number eight, the letter H. And uh, so, you know, it's just ideas of what what you see 
on situations like that. So Tinkerbell goes unlooked, the Scrooge McDuck signature, the portraiture on the Disney dollars. Thanks, Michael, for sharing that information with us. We definitely encourage you to uh, participate in those trivia questions, which is what Michael did. And also uh, give us your suggestions of uh, guests you'd like to see on the podcast as we are putting together our roster to finish up the rest of the year. And we got a lot of a lot of them on the hook. Let's hope that, uh, that they take the bait. That's what I'm hoping that happens here. Absolutely. And, um, you know, hopefully you'll take the bait on the trivia question in a bit. But before that, I want to uh, jump back in time with um, this week in numismatic history. Uh, we always love to explore what happened in the past uh, that can inform our present and future there's something that really is uh, neat that relates to world coinage. And so we don't get to talk about world coinage as much. So I want to highlight that uh, it was October 4th, 1788, when the Barbados pennies were struck at the Royal Mint purportedly for plantation owner Philip Gibbs. Now, this is a uh, somebody who loves world coins uh, may be familiar with it. It's a great design. The obverse has the national symbol, Barbados, a pineapple. And the reverse shows a bust of a, an African native wearing a plumed crown and the legend, I serve. There's some with uh, the varying sizes of pineapples and heads. There's a couple different versions. But the basic design type is the same. And um, these were engraved by John Milton, who was the artist and engraver then, and they were struck on October 4th, 1788. There are some overstrikes on trade tokens, fantasy restrikes, and, and other medals, uh, including uh, 1791 date. This is just one of those classic world coin designs, and, you know, it's really a token or, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't government authorized coinage. So, you know, we call it a coin sometimes, but it's more accurately described as a metal or a token. It's one of those things that I I have one somewhere. It really is. It, I mean, you look at it and you're taken back to, you know, 250 years ago almost. And, uh, it's a really neat design. So I, I thought that was fun that, um, that, happened this week in numismatic history. Also, <laughs> curiously, uh, the same date in 1963, coin world related note, due to the post office inability to handle its explosive growth, coin world caps its issue at 120 pages. Now, um, later the issues would expand to like 200 pages. You know, you think about the hobby in the 60s, it was just meteoric and and that was the only way to uh, really stay connected with the coin community. Coin World saw, as this note says, explosive growth. Um, then, you know, now everything's diffused. There's so many places to get the information. We don't, we don't publish uh, 200 pages a week like we did then, but I just found that uh, interesting as somebody who's been at uh, CoinWorld so long and seen the various issue sizes and, and both in paper size and, and page count uh, change, uh, I thought that was kind of cool to, to hear. So Yeah, definitely. And here's my take on that, because what you're talking about, we don't do things like that anymore, but we don't make silver coins anymore. 
And that's, you know, right at the uh, tail end of the silver. And I thought that yep. was pretty cool because the silver is what got a lot of people interested back then. Finding silver coins and change because that's what they were, silver coins. And they were, uh, you know, something that's now became highly sought and highly collected. I'd love to just... Uh, Hear about anybody who recently came across a silver coin and change. Hearing about them coming up in the Coinstar machines or, or that type of thing. You know, we were able to find that 42p recently and on the on the five cent coin. So just the idea of finding these different unusual types and, and back then the unusual uh, composition just gives you an indication of sometimes what the progress is all about out there. And uh, it's just the idea that. You mentioned it was a hot topic back then in the 60s to be a numismatist and love to see those days come back once again. They say what goes around comes around. It'd be neat to see that. I mean, the state quarter program did give it the shot in the arm, but it'd be great to see something like that happen again. Yeah, and and it's you know yeah, the, what goes around comes around. What could be more appropriate of a phrase than to describe the uh, this week in Coin World history? Because there's a lot of talk right now about the incoming, yet to be appointed or nominated mint director um, to replace outgoing David Ryder, who left uh, the the mint October first last week. I went to the October 8th, 2012 issue, 2012, because that's uh, really related to Barbara Howard's journey with uh, women on paper money, um, her push that you'll hear about in the interview in a bit. And uh, there was a story in that issue about how uh, then President Obama announced his intention to nominate former Ford Motor Company executive Bibiana Bibi Boerio to a five-year term as director of the United States Mint. Well, if you're listening and that name does not sound familiar, there's a reason for that because Miss Boerio was not approved as mint director. Her nomination, I believe, was stalled in Congress. Uh, but it speaks to the, you know, the very political nature of the mint and coinage and and all these things. You know, Congress dictates uh, commemorative coins. There's, uh, you know, Congress has been the push for all the the presidential dollars and and other things you know congress signs off on all that stuff with uh, legislatively you know they even have a say in who is director of the mint the story notes that if she had been approved or if she were approved by the senate banking housing and urban affairs committee and then by the full us senate boerio would become the first woman mint director since henrietta holzman 4 well that did not happen uh, four served as mint director from uh, August 2001 to August 2005. You know, we've seen this process play out, um, at least, you know, Coin World as an institution, myself, Paul Jokes, who, who covers the mint, um, you know, time and time again, uh, the impetus for this news story was the resignation or departure of Ed Moy, a uh, Republican holdover from the George W. Bush administration. And, uh, you know, Moy left in January 2011. It's often the case when you have a new administration that uh, folks Less so in in the mint and director of the BEP and all that. I mean, director of the BEP is not a, a political nomination like the mint director is. 
But you often see these folks uh, put the resignation in. It's just that's just the political game. Uh, sometimes, you know, the nomination for a mint director is, um, you know, it's given to somebody who was a fundraiser or was involved in the reelection or election campaign, that sort of thing. It's all politics. And, um, you know, everybody's talking right now about the incoming and outgoing mint directors. And I thought that's um, it's curious that this week, nine years ago, we were talking about the same thing. So yeah. quite interesting, as a matter of fact. But again, understanding the process is what's important here. I mean, there are certain elements of politics, as you mentioned there, but it's just not an idea of seen recently in some of the social media groups that, oh, the uh, Treasury Secretary already has somebody picked for that position. Well, that's not the way it works. You have to go through all the, even, even David Ryder, who had been a Mint Director previously, the 34th Mint Director, went through all of the elements involved in the nomination and the congressional investigations and that type of thing. You see it more high profile on Supreme Court justices than you would on the mint director's position. I mean, it's not going to lead the nightly news that we, uh, when we have a nominee and what that nominee goes through, he or she, but it's just the idea. It's not a case of just plug and play. You can't just simply slide somebody into that spot. And I think if you really want to look at why there's you know difficulties, look at the treasurer's position. That's one that, to my knowledge, right now is vacant. And it's been vacant for some time. And it's not unusual for it to be vacant. But even though the signatures appear on the bills that are printed every every day, it's, you know, that person is not in office. And, you know, again, I haven't really delved into that. And it might be something we have to delve into in the future. But, um, you know, it's just the idea that some of these people and their importance has to be done a certain way. It was mandated that way. That's the way it's going to be because, you know, you need to keep going. 1,700 employees still have an acting director that's going to be guiding the ship, and that's going to stay there until such time as a suitable person is found to take that position. I nominate Jeff Stark. No, I'm sorry, I can't. Uh, I already know what would happen with that one. So, uh, yeah. If, just- if nominated, I will not run. <laughs> if elected, I will not serve. Okay, well. Actually, you know what, though? Um DC is a nice town. I love the all the museums and all the you know. I'm just not the political type though, so well, um, you I, wouldn't you know. have time to go to those museums, so you would be quite busy. So let's yeah. just stay busy on the subject of numismatics here too, where we go to the letters from that very same issue, and I uh, found an interesting letter. It says, more ideas for role searchers. Now, we know a lot of folks enter into the hobby by uh, taking rolls of coins, uh, or at least more so back in the day, but it's still possible. It says, more ideas for role searchers. Regarding Coin World September 17th, readers ask on tips for finding coin rolls, here are a few methods I have tried. And it starts off, Try and see the same teller at the bank. Even if you can't get in their line, just wave hello. They'll remember you. Always take what they give you, even if it's brand new cents and you want to look for wheat cents. Being picky means you don't care about them, just your coins. And you can always drop off the rolls at another bank. Most people shop for groceries. The next three times that you're in the grocery store, you need to make your way over to 
the main teller, the ones working behind the service counter right there, and tell them you're a coin collector and wonder if they have any foreign or strange change they don't want. They may have it. You may not want it either, but if they have some and they want to get rid of it and you help them out, well, check a couple of times and then start asking for rolls, however many they could spare. In a couple of weeks, move up to $5.00. You build the friendship, then you get your rolls. When you're talking about bank tellers, show a few of the bank tellers a couple of the wheat cents that you found. Tell them that you used to look at $5.00 each week and now you miss it. Ask if they have any extra rolls of cents that they'd be willing to sell you. Now, keep in mind, this letter is only nine years old. Finally, if you can get two rolls, stop by every bank in your area and get two rolls. Then go back in a week. After a while, one of the banks is going to allow you to purchase more rolls per week. The letter comes to us from John Miller from Summerfield, Florida. Another letter I find of interest, and I go back to a previous podcast that we had when it concerns the coins that are not the ones at the high end of the Sheldon scale, but rather the ones down at the low end. The lowball collectors will be interested in this one. It said, in the response to the September 24th market analysis, which was low-grade and problem-free, the best of the worst enjoys popularity, I'm confused. Why would anyone pay $253 for a poor one Morgan dollar from any mint when you can get the mint state for a fraction of that price? There's not even enough silver to justify it. There must be a typo. That's from Brent, Brett Farrell, and the address is withheld. And of course, I think Andrew explained that very well as to what the attraction is for those poor ones and how much uh, the poor one has versus the uh, lower grade coins or higher grade coins that are available to them right there. So I'm uh, I'm a poor one because I didn't play the uh, lotto last week when it was oh. up there in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Right, that, that can always be rectified because I think even at the starting point, 40 million can make a difference. I mean, after the 38% tax, it's taken out of there. So you can do a lot of roll hunting with that kind of money. So uh, those letters, I mean, I found those pretty good. There were a couple of other good letters about uh, the values of the Liberty Head five-cent coin and uh, some of those I have in my collection. They're not poor one, but they're not MS60 uh, or higher either. So it's just the idea that there's some great letters here from just nine years ago in the coin world. And uh, it was especially timely to talk about the Mint director. But we're going to be coming up with an interview with Barbara Ortiz Howard. Jeff had mentioned that briefly. Barbara was the founder of the Women on 20s organization that's still having to do work. They got started back in 2012 with Barbara's idea, and she'll tell you more about that a little bit later on. But now I think I'm ready to see how my own numismatic knowledge stacks up against the world. I'm pumped up, ready for that trivia question. Okay. So, you know, last week I talked about Canadian coins in the trivia question because that's one of my favorite topics. Uh, The series, the 1967 Confederation Centennial Designs, And um, I mentioned some of the designs, but I did not mention two of them. So I wanted you to complete the puzzle. What are the designs for the 1967 dime or 10 cent coin and 25 cent coin uh, in Canada? So each coin has a different animal, as I I believe I said then. Um, Do you have any idea? Well, looking at the 1969 mint set didn't help me one iota because those are the regular 
coins that we have here. But, you know, Canada has a very committed interest in the wildlife. We've seen that continue on through through many, many coins. And uh, you, you cited some examples, and I'm, I'm going to get even more. Uh, you know, I, I got to think that there's some concern for coastal um, Canada, which uh, we have the maritime provinces and, and that type of thing. And they, they deserve a little bit of connection here. And of course, you've got the Western Canada and the uh, the plains out there as well. And so I got to believe one of them is going to be some type of a fish or some type of a sea creature of some kind. I would think more fish because there's a lot of fishing interests on Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick up through that area. So I think one of them is going to be a fish. The other one is going to be some kind of wildlife. I think you mentioned that the wolf was on one and, you know, we've seen beavers on the, on the standard five cent coins and, and that type of thing. So some, it's going to be some kind of mammal. It's going to be some kind of creature along the line. I don't recall seeing anything uh, cat related. So I'm going to go with a bobcat on that one. So I think it's some kind of fish and it may be a, a bobcat on, on one of them. So you're there. I mean, it is a fish on the dime. Or the 10 cent coin, you know, we have a dime, they have a 10 cent coin. I don't, you know, it's sometimes the, you know, the language we use, we ascribe it to others, even though that's not the language they use necessarily. Um, and it is a links on the 25 cent coin. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, if you say Bobcat, that's, that counts in, in my mind because they're pretty much, you know, um, similar enough that, um, yeah, I, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say you got it right. So okay, good. Because I was originally thinking something like puma or cougar, cougar, which would have been or mountain lion would have been slightly off. That's not the not necessarily close to the same thing. Yeah, I I think people um, mix them up, use them interchangeably when obviously they're not, you know, necessarily biologically, um, you know, something that you could interchange but uh but yeah i i i think in this case so i'm gonna i'm gonna say bobcat links close enough for me good enough for government work as they say <laughs> and uh, speaking of government work we talked to barbara howard about the appearance of women on paper money and one thing we didn't get into was the fact that whenever the next woman appears on u.s paper money that won't be the first time what was the first time. And so I want to know who appears on what note. Hmm. It's great that, you know, as you'll listen uh, here in a second with, with her, uh, it's great that we're talking about adding some diversity and different, you know, representation on American paper money and telling stories of people that maybe have, you know, been overlooked. But there is a female that has appeared on U.S. paper money before. Only one, though. When was it and who was it? What was the uh, what was the issue? So you'll, okay. you you can think about that for next week. Yeah, but yeah, well, well, hold up. Before I think about that, I think what I'm going to do is, uh, you know, I saw this article on CoinWorld.com. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to call Coin and Currency Institute and pick up the 22nd edition of the uh, the paper money book that's just out there. So you, you know that'll give me a reference source, and we'll just put a test on the shipping department see if they can get it here to me. And then I get to look at the pictures and see. So you've just provided me with an opportunity, number one, to increase my numismatic knowledge. Number two, to expand my numismatic library. I guarantee you that note is in that book. And uh, so, so yeah, it's, um, 
you'll you'll find out. You'll you'll see. You know, I don't know if Media Mail will get it to you in time, but uh, it certainly can provide you the answer you need. But in the meantime, you're going to want to listen to this interview. We had a, a good time talking about the initiative, and um, hopefully, you know, there's um, some traction on this uh, going forward soon. Our Coin World podcast is pleased today to have Barbara Ortiz Howard, who is the founder of Women on Twenties, and uh, it is a topic that I wish we weren't talking about in 2021, but we still are. Barbara, welcome to the Coin World podcast. Thank you, Larry and Jeff, for inviting me here today to talk about these issues. Well, this is something that has been around for some time, but I think that uh, there are quite a few of our listeners who are not aware of the initiative that began some time ago to change the look of the $20 note here in the United States. Barbara, I'm asking you now to take us back to the beginning. Uh, as the founder of Women on 20s, how did the idea come about? Well, Larry, uh, basically around 2012, uh, I started thinking about why there were no women on our currency as I was standing trying to get my coffee and looking through my my wallet. And it just sort of occurred to me that that was one of the things that lacked women's representation and lacked the fullest story. And uh, it was like an aha moment. I spoke to other people waiting in line with me and it's what you're a young person. Why don't you see if you can make this happen? And because uh, little did I think I would be involved in something like this because I had a day job. I run a construction company. And uh, where would I actually begin doing such a thing? Uh, however, no one was really interested in taking it up. And so after a couple of years, I started mulling it over with some other friends and we started in with trying to conceive of a logo design, trying to call names of women who would be good candidates for the 20. We thought about what denomination would actually be the right denomination. And we did originally think it would be the 20. And then after thinking about it more, we really wanted the 20 for a number of reasons, which we can uh, talk about in a few minutes. So that's that was the beginning of it. And by 2015, we were launching our campaign, which we try to make look like a presidential election kind of thing, where we had a caucus period, where we had people suggest names, and we had them evaluate a list of over 100 people on the level of what was their contribution to society versus the level of difficulty they had. So we gave each candidate a weighted score. We reduced that from 100 to 60 names. We did that process again, came up with 30, and we had people rank those 30 into their top 15. And that's what we went with in our primary round of voting, which lasted about six weeks starting in March of 2016 during Women's History Month. And then we had the finalists from that first primary round move on to the final round, the final four, March Madness. And we then had Harriet Tubman emerge as the 
winner of that final round. And we took those results, over 600,000 people casting their votes. And we took the results to the treasury and to the president at the time. And surprisingly, they responded. You say surprisingly. Why was it surprising to you? In a way, it shouldn't have been so surprising because we had so much attention. The media was pretty wild about the story. It was a very feel-good, happy kind of story, which is rare in any news cycle. People were very happy about it and excited and interested in the results and interested in what people were saying and the interest in schools and young people were like, this is a great idea. This is something good. I'd like to see all these different people get on our currency. So there was, there was quite a bit of uh, excitement and they had to be aware of it. But typically you don't feel that you get that kind of direct response from the Treasury Department or the president's office. So we did get contacted by the president's status of uh, women group and also the Treasury Department after we did contact them and they invited us to come in and discuss with them the campaign and their process. So the initiative to put uh, a female face on the $20 note sort of pivoted, I guess, in um, mid-2015 when uh, there was an announcement that a woman would appear on the $10 note. Can you talk about why the 20 matters as the template or the, the palette for which a, a female representation appears in paper money? How did that announcement change what you wanted to do and how did you react to it and move forward with this uh, broader goal? Right. You know what, uh, Larry, I misspoke before. Our campaign did take place in, in spring of 2015. So that result is what we went to with the Treasury. And then they announced that they won and we met with them and they told us their plan was to have a woman. They had a concurrent idea to have a woman on currency, but it would be on the $10 bill. So they had this campaign, hashtag the new 10, which is the only relic that lives on about that campaign. On And it lives on in Twitter world. So you could, because after that, once the next administration came in, all matter of this changing of the face of the currency was kind of, erased from the treasury website but in it, it lived on in, in the twitter world so when they came out with their announcement and when they told us it was because they said the ten dollar bill was counterfeited more than any other bill percentage wise so not in absolute numbers of bills because the 20 is four times as prevalent and used and printed as the 10, especially worldwide. And they were just saying, well, percentage-wise, the $10 is counterfeited more. But the impact of, of 
counterfeited 20s is much greater. If a store owner receives four bad 20s, that's $80. If he receives four, five bad 10s, it's $50. So yeah. it doesn't really add up. So we thought that their idea was flawed. And we asked them, well, why don't you just change both bills at one time? No, we never do that. Uh, we only change one bill at a time. And we just could not get their full logic as to why they were so set on the 10 when the 20 is really, in terms of what we're saying, the absolute numbers and the value of the counterfeited money is so much greater. Uh, I believe it was 2014, there was a, I think it was an auto mechanic in Canada managed to get the paper on which our currency is made on, and he managed to get plates and do various things and created the best counterfeits they had ever seen, $250 million worth of counterfeits. And he made some kind of deal and eventually was really only served one month in prison for it uh, and is, in, is a free man in Canada. So Peru, North Korea, these are countries that are counterfeiting and they're focused on the 20. The 10 is not the, the centerpiece that the treasury was trying to put forward to us. And we, we countered them with that, but they were very intent on changing the 10. So then the along comes the Broadway play Hamilton, and everybody gets excited about that one here. But <laughs> I think the, the idea that uh, we see a lot now, because as this campaign has gone along, uh, the, the choosing of replacing Andrew Jackson became the idea behind it. And it almost uh, took upon an, an idea that the reason why that this campaign started was we wanted to get rid of Andrew Jackson, when that really wasn't the point. The point was to get a woman on currency. But choosing Andrew Jackson and replacing him with Harriet Tubman seems to make plenty of sense as a historical correction of what we're taught in schools. You mentioned the young people and, I mean, the, the education system being what it is. But I think there was uh, one particular individual who's now a part of your campaign who played a key role in a letter to President Obama. Can you please explain that? Yes, well, uh, that's interesting. Uh, absolutely, Andrew Jackson and, uh, had such a diabolical uh, role in our history. And to continue to honor him in any fashion is very painful to so many marginalized groups, to, to all of us actually, and but especially to Native Americans, to people of color. You know, he was not just a slave trader, but he was a slave trader, not just a slave owner. And that makes him, you know, puts him in a different category uh, and of course, his constant intent to remove Native Americans by any means possible and necessary. So it was always part of our our concept 
And that's why we selected him over others for sure. And as people got more understanding of the need to have women on our currency, the story of Jackson was able to come out. The story of Sophia, a young girl from Massachusetts, was that she had separately and independently, before our campaign actually launched the actual voting, had written President Obama and said, I don't understand why we don't have women on our money, like on our quarters and on our, and I'm not sure if she also had mentioned the uh, dollar bills, but it was certainly a very endearing and wonderful observation from a young person who's like, where am I in this? Where do I fit in? And where do I fit in in this American story? Because currency really is a wonderful way to tell our history. And other countries put a lot of effort into their bills to talk about their history and to illuminate the people who created that history for them. And we have had seven individuals represented on our currency since 1929 selected by the then Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon. And just as a curious note was that there was a committee who selected who would be on each denomination. And for an unknown reason, Mellon crossed out Grover Cleveland, who was going to be on the $20 bill, and wrote in Andrew Jackson, kind of took him off the $1,000 bill and put Jackson on the $1,000, uh, put Grover Cleveland on the $1,000 bill. And of course, we don't have those larger denominations, the highest denomination being a $100 bill. But it was always said, well, we don't know why Andrew Jackson was on the 20. We don't know why anyone has ever, never asked why there haven't been other people put on. And that's completely not true. Uh, in a study by uh, Professor Ruth Ann Robbins and Genevieve Tung from Rutgers, they went into the archives. They're the ones who came up and they presented that piece where Mellon had crossed out in pencil, you know, Grover Cleveland's name. They found many, many, many instances of people writing letters to Congress, to the Treasury, asking for different portraitures and different illustrations be put on our currency. And it was nothing was ever done. There was at one point a bill in Congress to have uh, Susan B. Anthony put on a $2 bill. But that never got passed, of course. And... Um, it was very popular, the concept was popular, but never got anywhere. And so our ability to change things is quite different than what we like to think of ourselves because in every other area, we talk about change and innovation and creation of new technologies and new items and new products, but not when it comes to our currency. When you have a situation where uh, the initial 
activity was going during one administration. Then there was another administration, and there has since been yet a third administration as far as on the executive side of things. And there also is the changing of the positions that are important here, like the Treasury Secretary with now Janet Yellen in that position. When there is a transition like this, you have to basically start all over again and uh, you know make the uh, make the those who are in office and those who are uh, reporting to that person aware of the campaigns. Well, I, I think that there are some parts that don't really change so much, like the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. The people who have been in that area have not changed since the Obama era. That's the same players and executives at, at the BEP. And the thing that has really been the obstacle here or the difficulty is that for many decades, the blind and visually impaired had beseeched the treasury, please, your money is so uniform. It all looks the same. Could you do something about it? You know, we can't tell one bill from the other. We're at the mercy of people to give us the right change. We have to ask people what this currency is that we're holding in our hand. It's very humiliating. It's degrading. It's it's difficult. We, and the Treasury said, yes, we're going to do something. We're going to do something. But they never did. And finally, in 2002, the American Council of the Blind sued the Treasury Department. And this is very significant. And they sued him for violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And, you know, this is a classic David versus Goliath, American Council of the Blind having so little money, Treasury having unlimited money. We'll, spit, we'll just duke it out in court. And six years later, the American Council of the Blind, for the Blind, uh, emerges victorious. Treasury is found in violation of the Americans for Disabilities Act. And is now required to provide meaningful access. That's 2008. And they say, we're not going to tell you how you have to do this. Excuse me, they don't have to tell you how to do this. However, you will need to do this before you can change your currency. So you can't make any other changes in your currency unless you're making that change for meaningful access. So really, we couldn't change a portraiture, even if everybody, every president was on board, every executive branch, every treasury secretary, unless they also had developed the meaningful access, which they had three elements to it. The, the most significant one would be the raised tactile feature. And that was in 2008, and we essentially haven't seen any movement in that, even though it's been mandated by the courts. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, um, you know, I'm very grateful to you all because I had not seen until your article uh, the OIG report on uh, the redesign schedule. 
because many people are like, what, what is the holdup? What's the problem? And, you know, the, the treasurer keeps saying, oh, we have security issues. We have security issues. And this report that you just reported on, September, was from June 2020. So it's really, they're really trying to keep it under the radar. Uh, I uh, now went back and I picked up the entire OIG report and it's really very much of a differential report. Like, oh, they had some problems. Yeah, and they're going to take care of them and they're going to improve on their scheduling and they're going to, uh, you know, work on their lessons learned, that kind of thing uh, for, you know, 100 pages. So 2008, it's 2021, 13 years, the Treasury has managed not to provide this meaningful access to raise tactile feature. They have given out something close to 100,000 currency readers and have worked with app stores to develop apps so people can read the bills in their, from their smartphones. But this is not really adequate for the blind. They're not satisfied with it. They want what other countries, 180 other countries in the world, have figured out how to incorporate meaningful access security, and cultural representation while we have not. Countries like Canada offered us help. We said, no, we got it. (laughs) We haven't done that. And I will tell you that one thing that happened was back in 2016, since that 2008 decision by the court, every six months, the Treasury goes to the court and says, this is what we're up to. This is what we've done. We've given out more readers. We've held more conferences. We've studied more things. And uh, we're working on this meaningful access and we're doing everything we can. So they have continued to provide these status reports just until recently, uh, September, they had another updated report and they still haven't come up with their way to provide meaningful access. What had happened in January of 2016 in their status reports, they said, oh, wait a minute, hold the printing presses. We know you want to change the faces and and the meaningful access. That's going to be really hard. And we have big security issues. And we're not going to be able to produce this new 10 in 2020. So that was still during the Obama administration. They said, we can't do it. And we'll let you know when we could do it. So May of that year, they came back and said, well, it's going to be till 2026 before we could straighten this out. So in 2016, they knew it was going to take them 10 years to straighten this out. So given the molasses pace of bureaucracy and (laughs) considering there was so much momentum for the movement in 2015, particularly six years later, how do you regain that momentum and how do you remain engaged with folks who want to see this change in this representation with the understanding that it's still based on the OIG report, you know, nine years, almost a decade down the road. It is difficult to sustain momentum, and the issue that right now that I see is that 
the organization that has said that there was a security issue, the ACD, the Advanced Counterfeit Deterrence Committee, made up of the Treasury, the BEP, the Federal Reserve Secret Service, and within the Federal Reserve, we have bank operations. So bank operations and the Federal Reserve have said, we have no objection to changing the portraiture or the, uh, you know, incorporating meaningful access so long as it's not too costly to our stakeholders. This was in some memorandums that they had in the past. And that's what we see as being the difficult rub is that these other stakeholders feel like it's going to be too difficult. Like the money uh, will stack differently with the raised tactile feature. Therefore, we have to change everything and the manufacturing will be different. And all. Of, and I don't know that they actually supplied what the cost will be, but somebody has to step up to the plate because in addition to being racist and sexist, this is a very ableist country. And if you can't keep up, you're gonna, you're definitely gonna fall behind. Well, and as you mentioned, there are other countries in the world who have overcome this situation, and apparently they didn't have those very same concerns about how much it's going to cost or how's the money going to stack. Right, and the government can help subsidize those changeover costs. And if we did these these things together, like if we did the bill, you know, more than one bill at a time then the retooling would be one time instead of retooling. Now we got to retool again and do it one time. You know, we have a very powerful vending lobby and they pretty much created a law in, through Congress that you can't change the $1 bill because they don't want to go through retooling. And that is the most used bill that there is. So, these other lobbies and interests are under the radar and are creating the um, roadblock to progress. And like you're saying, many other countries, Australia, Canada, England, many countries in, in, in Africa and around the world have figured out how to create a raised tactile feature that is that works. And the other part is that's interesting is that the most successful ones, the ones that the, the blind really have felt have worked and are enduring uh, ways to create that tactile accessibility is through a, an embossing process. And the other way you could do is through intaglio. Countries like Brazil have used the intaglio and that is not as durable a method as the embossed. The intaglia wears out after a few months, actually. So why go through that process if it's not enduring? And guess what? About a year ago, the Treasury has settled on, finally after doing all their testing, they're going to use the intaglio method and not the embossing method, which is the preferred method of the blind people and visually impaired. They feel that, you know, their experience around the world has been much better with the embossed. So 
other countries also use a polymer versus mm-hmm. a paper. Yep. And that's a that's a critical thing because the paper that we use, the crane paper, has many of the security features already embedded in it. So we're kind of married to that. And I will admit that I'm not sure how the, the intaglio versus the embossed works on paper versus the intaglio versus embossed on polymer, which is what Canada, countries like Canada and Australia use, use a polymer, uh, which is great for their security purposes too. It's much more difficult to counterfeit than the paper. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, anybody who any collector of world paper money or banknotes um, is, you know, of modern issues uh, knows how the polymer. I mean, there's something like 50 plus countries using polymer notes or or having issued them at one time. And, you know, you can add uh, a security window. You can add all sorts of things that just are not really options or don't really flow with the cotton linen blend of the of the crane company you know exclusive uh, exclusive blend for for paper money the vending issue raises a whole other question totally uh, <laughs> I, well i mean the point it raises with me is we don't have that issue if we get rid of the dollar note and actually adopt a dollar coin yeah. and it's almost as if you have to partner with several other of these folks, like the the folks advocating for change with the blind, like the folks advocating for uh, getting rid of the dollar note, like, you know, and maybe there's room for somebody, you know, who wants to bring additional representation, you know, to a note, whether that's Native Americans, whether that's specifically persons of color, uh, although certainly Harriet Tubman falls under that rubric. You know, this is a lot of inside baseball, I appreciate that. And we try to build a coalition and Native Americans certainly are for this. I have myself gotten bogged down with this problem that there was an injunction on the treasury. They were not beholden to any timeline of any kind. So in the last status report, they said that they'll come out with a, um, you know, trial for the $10 bill with the raised tactile feature. They're, well, like they're going to be testing something, some prototype. They're still not going to be ready until 2026, right? So that's five years, four years away. Then they're going to have their next bill. And that, so it's so far down the line, and they're scheduling, and that's what the OIG reports is, is that they really haven't incorporated everything into their critical path for developing this thing. And I don't know if it's intentional or incompetent. Like, what is it that you don't know that you need to build a new facility or maybe add some additional equipment to the Fort Worth facility? I mean, the facility I have in D.C. right now is ancient and antiquated, and it's amazing that it actually functions given its age. But they haven't incorporated all of these aspects. So these are very soft, soft dates. When they were doing the $100 bill over, that took 14 years to produce. 
I had the uh, good fortune and opportunity to speak to the designer of that bill and asked him, what, what took so long? He said, well, you know, we had two different treasury secretaries, but it was really more than that. It was, they had technical difficulties. They had smudging problems. Right now they have, I don't know, like a billion dollars of bad notes sitting somewhere, like a billion physical bills. Yeah, of the hundreds. (laughs) They don't know what to do with them. They're studying what they should do. They should shred them, if they should go through them and see which ones they could salvage. It's like, move on. We haven't been using them. You printed new ones anyway. They're taking up space. Put in some new machinery. Get on with the show. So then the question becomes, how do you stay? I mean, we talked about the momentum. Do you ever just get to the point where you just go throw your hands in the air and say, this is a hopeless cause, this is a lost cause? Do you ever get that way? Well, no, because people like you call me and they ask me questions all the time. So it's still on people's minds. I have forged relationships with so many other people that want this to happen. I have forged a relationship with the uh, American Council uh, for the Blind, of the Blind. I keep saying that wrong. It's of the blind because the people who run it are blind. Uh, the, uh, the lawyer who represents them has been very generous and supportive. Uh, Native, my Native American friends who would like nothing more than to see Jackson go. And, um, you know, my Tubman posse from Auburn to Cambridge, there's nothing more that they would like to see. So there's a lot of excitement and hope still. And we know that the uh, road to success is always under construction. We're just working on it. We're just working on it uh, little by little. And all these other factors, I'm trying to put it out there to the public. You know, with all the things that are in people's minds today, COVID, paying the bills, keeping their children safe, you know, all the other issues are creeping loss of democracy uh, and rights with the deputizing of uh, ordinary citizens to kind of rat out other people who their privacy in Texas, right? The SB8 is completely an infringement on our constitutional rights and has been allowed to uh, stand by the Supreme Court of this country. There's very frightening things that are going on that the currency isn't changing is uh, not the most glamorous topic. But neither was it the most exciting topic when we first brought it out. There was all kinds of things. We were in the winds of change at that time. So people will acknowledge that it is important that the changing of our symbols really does matter. The removal of Confederate statues, of Confederate symbols, of the removal of the Confederate symbol from the Mississippi state flag, these are significant things. They're small, not everybody hears about it all the time, but these are important because it's like how we see ourselves. 
in our everyday it's subliminal advertising. This is what we are. And as you mentioned that the website was developed as a kind of a campaign, and this is an ongoing campaign, and especially now with the petition on the front page. Tell us how the folks can, number one, get there to get to the petition and uh, what the address of the website is where they can find out more information because we certainly, we only just touched on the high points of what Women on 20s is all about. Well, thank you um, for that, Larry. The thing is, is that our voting is is over um, as of 2015. So right now, um, you can you can check out our website www.womenon2020s20s.org, and on that website you can find out about the campaign, how many votes each candidate had gotten. We have biographies of all the candidates. Uh, we have positions on different things that have come out, different problems. We have a little merchandise store if you want to have a. a Tubman uh, t-shirt, Tubman 20 t-shirt. We, we have those. We have stamps in case you don't want to wait for um, the treasury to change it. We have a, a stamp that was designed by an artist who was so moved by the campaign and he created a, um, a, a stamp of, of an, actually he created a whole sculptured $20 bill the outsized artifact of the Tubman 20. Uh, It's very beautiful. And then we produced that for our t-shirts and stamps. So there are ways to keep the dream alive. And we would encourage you to do that. You can write to me uh, at that website or uh, at Barbara at Women on 20s. And if you're interested in spreading the word and supporting the effort. We'd love to hear from you. And we have other little activities that we are constantly doing and recognizing. Uh, There's just, you know, so many ways that this has impacted our daily lives and what we see, uh, whether it's the occasional message from the press secretary, Jen Saki had said back in January, oh, we're going to see what we could do to expedite it. Well, I don't know that they, they can, given everything else they have on their plate, uh, that they are really expediting it. But there are organizations and corporations that need to step up. If the banks and those kinds of stakeholders would step up to the plate and say, we want to make this happen, we're ready to provide meaningful access for the visually impaired, for the millions of people that cannot distinguish and independently denominate their money. We can do that because they are our customers too, and they're people and they deserve this. We will step up to the plate and we'll retool and we'll bite the bullet here. That's what we need. Indeed. So if you can help me with that, that would be great. There you go. The, the floodgates will open. Every bit of support is needed at this time, and every bit is appreciated as well. We've been talking today with Barbara Ortiz Howard, the founder of Women on 20s. Barbara, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to speaking to you again in the future. That'd be great. Thank you so much, Larry and thank Jeff. You. Much appreciated. Have a great day. You too.
That was our interview with Barbara Howard of the Women on 20s Initiative. It was a great opportunity to have a chance to speak to her and have her give us the background on what's going on. But uh, it's really kind of uh, sad, as we talked about earlier, the political processes that are that are taking place here and some of the stumbling blocks that they've come across here. And, uh, you know, you may want to check out that petition on their website, womenon20s.org.org, because there are ways that we can help get this going here, this uh, worthy cause and been a lot of speculation, a lot of talk about it. And uh, I, I think this is not the last we've heard of it. And I think that it's going to be something we'll be uh, having an opportunity to revisit with Barbara Ortiz Howard in the near future. But it's been a great chance to uh, expand the knowledge here. And once again, I want to thank the fine fo- folks at CoinWorld Plus, our new sponsor here. And want you check them out, their website, coinworldplus.com and perhaps you'll see them at an upcoming show not sure if the plans are to go to Baltimore or not but uh, might be down there to see them uh, coming up in the near future Baltimore coming up here and I think we're going to try to get a guest related to uh, some of the history uh, connected to that show in the near future but again thanks to Coin World Plus appreciate them being on board for this one. It's about time to wrap this one up once again. We encourage you to send your information along to us. Check us out. Answer our trivia questions. Send all answers to Jeff so you don't help me out. You know, Michael figured that one out for us. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. That was a good call on his part. So, But yeah, we'll be, we'll be happy to reshare the information when it's appropriate. So we'll be happy to uh, listen to your comments, look at your comments, and uh, do appreciate you. Subscribe where you get the chance. It's been a great opportunity once again. Welcome to October and look forward to more Coin World podcast. But uh, I say until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.